Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So I'm happy to get to address you tonight about the Dhamma. And I want to talk to you a little bit about what we are doing here, which after many days of retreat you might have lost track of a little bit, (laughs) or forgotten. Uh, And particularly also talk something about identity and the self, the arising of the self. So the teachings that we're following are from a particular person, the techniques of meditation and so on. And the teachings are called the teachings of the Dharma. But it actually is something that this person, the Buddha, discovered uh, 2,600 years ago in India, but discovered through using meditation techniques such as what we're doing here. So it's actually like something that he learned about the nature of reality. It's not like an esoteric philosophy he made up in the woods, you know, which now you have to like figure out and memorize and all this stuff. So the good news with that is that all of us have the equipment with which we can actually see the same things. So the body-mind is all you need to see this. And these techniques that we're using of awareness, of metta, uh, are the techniques that will help to reveal this. So it's actually just understanding the truth of the way things are, which is one translation of Dhamma. So just how things are, it's nature. And both understanding how nature works, as well as understanding yourself as part of nature, not separate from nature. So there's ways that things work in the world, and if you understand how they work, and if you live in harmony with that, then you have a more easy life, a happy, peaceful life. And if you try to live against those rules, then you lead lead a life that has more conflict and chaos. So some of you have seen me give this example before, but the the example I like is with the law of gravity. So the law of gravity is just a natural phenomenon. And uh, when you're born as a baby, you don't necessarily know about the law of gravity. So you can see babies experimenting with this, you know, sitting in their high chair and like dropping things off and watching them fall. And then, you know, watching the adults pick them up and bring them back and stuff, right? And so then they think like, oh, what about this side, right? So you could do it now. So what if I take this pen and try to place it in midair? Like, what's going to happen, right? So it falls to the ground, right? In this case, it fell to the ground and the cap fell off. (laughs) And then you could think, well, okay, that time that happened, but what if I do it on this side, you know? Same thing happened. In fact, the cap also came off this side too, right? And then you might think, well, maybe if I put it higher, you know, if I put higher, it'll stay, right? But no, that too. Or you might think, well, what if I'm not looking at it, right? <laughs> no, it still falls, right? So then you see by doing this, like, oh, actually, this must be, this is a law, the natural law of gravity. And it's not actually that something that you need to figure out any more than that, you know, like who is running that or... Uh, you know, how all the specific details of how it works. You know, if you're interested in mathematical formulas, you can do that, but you don't need to know how that works. And you also don't need to take it personally, right? Like you can see that 
This happens to other people too. If other people try to place things in midair, also they will fall. So you don't need to, you know, when something falls, uh, because you understand the law of gravity, you know why that happened. Like, oh, that's that's the law of gravity. So you don't need to be like, why me? Like, why now? Like, why did that happen? Right? It's just part of the way things are. So then you can start to learn to live in harmony with that. So, you know, if I have my glass of water, instead of trying to place it in midair, you know, so I can drink it during the talk, um, I will place it on some surface, like here, right? Or on this stage. And through doing that, there's less messes in my life, you know? There's, it's just there's less messes. There's less broken glass and water and uncapped pens and, you know, stuff all over the place, right? And it's not something that you need to stress out about. It's something like to understand and then live in harmony with that. So this is actually the Dhamma. It's the truth of the way things are uh, in the physical world, in the mental world, um, basically how reality unfolds in our experience. So what are some of the aspects of that? So one is, as you pay attention, you can start to see that all things, all experiences change. So are subject to impermanence. And this is true externally, this is true internally, this is true in your own body, this is true of the weather, uh, this is true of everything. And we make the mistake when we don't pay attention of seeking lasting happiness in material things, experiences, people, as if they will not change. So this is dukkha. This is a recipe for unhappiness, unsatisfactoriness. We're trying to live against the grain of things. We're trying to control things that are not in our control. And we believe things to have some solid, independent, permanent, unique, separate uh, selfness. Most importantly, uh, me, myself, right? As the most vital and important part of the solar system, right? Uh, But also including actually everything. So then it's like, oh, I will get that thing. I will get that person. I will get that object. And then I'll be happy. That's how I get happiness. I'll find as, as many things that are pleasant to me, pleasing to me, I will get them, and I will hold that system still. And it's really just a, a doomed strategy for happiness, but it's kind of the best guess of the unenlightened mind as to how to function uh, in uh, the world. So also, you know, in the beginning of the retreat, we took the, um, the precepts, and the precepts are these trainings, these guidelines around our actions, sort of ethical behavior guidelines. And we don't you know, usually talk about them that much during the retreat, but I think it's important to note that these are actually both the articulation of how we would live if we were completely in alignment with the way things are. So if we actually completely understood this interdependence, if we understood these laws. And it also is the path towards getting there, so to pay attention, to cause and effect in these particular areas. So it's said that if someone is awakened, their behavior naturally aligns with the precept. Like it's not something that they have to think about or you know, have rules about or something. It's just naturally living from a sense of interconnection, of understanding uh, that self and other is an illusion. And so we naturally will act with metta, um, act from a place of uh, unity and love. So I recently had this um, confirmed uh, more for me uh, through experience I had of meeting a very remarkable man. Uh, I, I've been teaching some retreats in different parts of the country, and I taught one retreat in Detroit. Uh, and so a retreat for activists who came from all different parts of the country 
uh, and who are interested in uh, different aspects of social change, so around the environment or around uh, uh, civil rights or around public health or different things like that. And the retreat was partly meditation and mindfulness and then partly learning about the city and what's going on in Detroit, which is actually really fascinating and interesting. And then we did some storytelling and um, various other different exercises. So it's, it's through this group called the Center for Whole Communities, sort of thinking about what does it take to make a whole community, to make a community that's healthy and vibrant uh, for all of us. So this guy who I met there... Uh, there's a young man who said that um, when he was a teenager, he had uh, gotten into a lot of trouble. So he basically had fallen into um, bad habits of um, harming others, of crime, basically, uh, and just kept going down that path. So um, holding up stores and violence and different things. And then uh, he's an um, African-American guy, probably now in his mid to late 20s. And he said that at one point he actually um, was part of a group of people in a car that killed someone. So he was not the one who pulled the trigger, but he was basically accessory to a murder. Uh, and uh, he was caught and tried. Uh, and he said he was very cold at that point. He was very separate. He was you know, in his own thing. So at the trial, he was, um, he was just under 18, and he was actually sentenced to life uh, in prison, but as a juvenile. So that meant till he was 21. And he said he felt nothing. He was just cold, you know, just like uh, kind of numb about it all. And then he, he told me that as he was walking out of the courtroom, the father of the guy who they killed said to him, um, Mark, do something with your life. And it really struck him. You know, somehow that question, that statement really struck him. And so he started to turn it over in his mind. Like, like what does he mean, do something with your life? Like, what do people do with their life? Like, what have I been doing with my life? You know, what is there to do with your life? And he really took this to heart to, to like, try to understand this for some reason. And uh, he describes how one night he was, like, thinking about this, and suddenly he had this life review kind of going on. You know, and he's like, what have I been doing with my life? And he saw all these things that he did, but he saw them from a different viewpoint. He saw, basically, cause and effect playing out. So he saw himself walking into a store... And the shopkeeper um, smiled at him and was friendly. And then he saw himself pulling out a gun and the guy's face crumbling you know, in fear. And he saw that, like, oh, this was his action that caused this. You know? And he actually felt the pain of that, like, really for the first time, very deeply. And this went on and on for him. Like, he just reviewed all of the actions of his life like this. And he said he started just, like, punching the walls of his cell and, like, banging his head against the wall. You know, it was, like, so much for him to take to actually feel the effects of this. And then he kind of collapsed, and he had this sort of epiphany. And when he came out of this, he was a transformed person. And he said even the other people, young men in the prison, um, could see this about him, and were like, what happened to you? you know? And since that time, he actually dedicated his life to service. And he's been working with young men who are in trouble uh, with crime. And uh, it's just a remarkable guy. Like I could see from the way he carries himself... Uh, he's just such a person of integrity now. You know? He's very present, uh, which I think is a quality of all people who have some level of realization or of um, wakefulness. He's a very thoughtful guy. Uh, and he's very trustworthy. And I think this is also where kind of like metta and wisdom come together. You know, there's a sense of like, oh, I can feel safe with this person. 
Like, I can't trust them. And that's actually considered like one of the best gives, gifts that we can give someone is the gift of uh, their feeling that you're not going to harm them, this feeling of metta, trust. So I, I enjoyed going to Detroit partly because um, I really love cities. So I love being in nature, but I also really love cities, uh, which contain you know, both the beauty and joy of creativity of human life, but also uh, a lot of the worst parts of crime and um, poverty and difficulty. And uh, I live in the Mission in San Francisco. I know some of you know this, this neighborhood, which has everything, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, right? like valet parking and homelessness in the same block always, right? Uh, addiction and beautiful murals, all of this. And because I love the city, it motivates me to actually understand it to an, and to explore it. So uh, you know, I think this is true of love also. Like that which you love, that which you care about, you're interested in, like you want to find out about. You know? So this quality of investigation comes in. So recently I went on a, um, a, I remember the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition, and um, they offered this bicycle tour, tour of the San Francisco sewer system. Uh, so, um, so this was very appealing to me. This was like right in my, uh, and we didn't bicycle in the sewers, but they like, um, you know, we biked around um, the city, and uh, the, it was done with the Public Utilities Commission, and they basically explained like what happens after you flush, right? <laughs> So it doesn't just disappear, you know. Uh, you know, it, it it doesn't just go nowhere. But actually, there's this whole really interesting, intricate system of how the liquid waste is taken and purified, and things taken out of it, and then the solid waste taken to another place, and then like processed, and it produces some like gases that are used as energy, and then actually it turns into this kind of like Plato-like substance that's like fertilizer that's taken up to Sonoma and like put into the the earth again, right? comes full circle. And the Play-Doh-like stuff isn't smelly at all. They showed it to us. It's very, like, very interesting. You know. So this is interesting to understand. Like, well, what happens? You know, there's this aspect of the city that, that before this, I didn't know about at all. You know? Like how many times have I flushed a toilet in San Francisco and like, did not think of what happens after that. Right? Uh, but it's like, oh, tr- understanding. Like, oh, it doesn't just disappear. Here it goes. And they told us different things like that um, um, medicines were very hard to pull out of the water. You know, like human-created chemicals, right? Um, they also said that dental floss was very bad for the system. Like, dent- so they do the centrifuging thing, and somehow the dental floss gets all, like, entangled. So don't flush dental floss, right? So, you know, the things that you love, like, actually, if you're interested in your own mind in this way, like, you know, you can get interested in, like, understanding. Like, what are the passageways? Like, what happens in my mind? You know, where does the mind go? Like, how does it unfold? You, you know, even the ickiest places that you seem to go to, like, get interested in that. You know, like, try to understand, like, what's, what happened there? What's been going on with that? Right. So also, uh, I love cities, and so I, I read some things about, you know, urban planning and things like that. And, um, you know, Detroit was a particularly interesting example where there are these buildings um, that are disintegrating. So it's kind of like this, these... Um, monuments to America's industrial past, you know, as like the ruins of Carthage and Rome or something, you know, there's, there's a building that's like built by the people who built um, Grand Central Station in New York, but it's huge, it's like 20 some stories high, the Michigan Central Train Depot, completely empty and dilapidated, you know, in the middle of town. There's a giant car factory, Packard 
car factory. It's a mile and a half long. It used to employ 40,000 people, completely empty, falling apart. You know, and so many structures. You know, Detroit used to be the fastest growing city in America in like the 30s and 40s, I think. And now there's been like so much contraction there. But at the same time, there's a lot of creativity that happens there. There's a lot of interesting uh, urban agriculture and arts and like new thinking about how cities can be. So you can, you can tell about what's, inter- what's important uh, in a civilization or in cities sometimes by looking at the buildings, too. So, you know, there was a certain time when um, uh, you go to a town and the tallest building was always the church. So, you know, that during medieval times, so you go to town, there's all these houses and there's one big steeple, right? So this was during the time when religion, religious uh, powers had the most power. And then there was a time when government buildings were the most large and intricate, like San Francisco City Hall, you know, this giant domed building. And now later, it's actually corporate buildings. So you can see the rise of corporate power. So big skyscrapers built by companies. Or now you actually have these campuses, you know, built by different companies. Yeah. So again, just to apply this to your mind, like pay attention to your mind. Like what are the biggest features in your mind? You know, <laughs> like what is it that appears most commonly there as the patterns of mind? You know. Like, look at that, understand that, be interested in that. You know, see what are the features of your own internal life like this. So in San Francisco, they're actually um, building a new Transbay Terminal, which is a, um, a new bus depot, and also where the future high-speed train to L.A. might sometimes come in. Right? Uh, and in the dig for this, um, this really interesting thing happened where uh, one of the people operating one of the cranes to dig out this pit, and this is like right in downtown San Francisco, came upon this thing that he thought, like, oh, this doesn't really look like a rock. You know? So he stopped and uh, called his supervisor over, and they looked at it, and it turns out it's the tooth of a woolly mammoth. Right? <laughs> so they found this in downtown San Francisco, and it's like 10 inches long. And then they dated it, so it's like ten to 15,000 years old from the Pleistocene era. And it was like 100 feet down in this dark sand. And I just love that they found that. Because it's like, yeah, we have this idea of who we are. you know, Like, oh yeah, we're this city, and we're doing really well, and it's this great human enterprise. And you know, 100 feet down is just this reminder. Like, you are not always here. <laughs> you know? At one point, like saber-toothed tigers and mammoths and you know, all these different creatures like, roamed this land. And even here in Spirit Rock, you know, right now we have this identity. This is a meditation center, and here is where we come to do meditation. And at some point in the past, it was where the coastal Miwok people lived. You know, different tribes of people, native people, lived here and moved around. So we have these ideas about how things are, and usually we think we're right, and it's so clear, like, oh yeah, this is our thing. This is who I am. This is who we are. But if you dig a little bit under the surface, you can see, like, oh, that's not always true. You know, our ideas of who we are are one perspective, but not complete perspective at all. So some of you saw me um, walking around here with some people who looked like they might be my parents. <laughs> and some people asked me in interviews if this is, uh, in fact, true. And yes, so these, these were my parents who came to visit me. Uh, and so they came from the East Coast um, to visit me because it was my birthday this week. And I'm not telling you that because I want 100 scraps of paper saying happy birthday. So you can send me meta. Don't, please don't uh, send me notes about that. Um, 
but so they, they came, but of course I'm up here teaching this retreat, right? So, uh, so I couldn't spend that much time with them, but so I drove down to San Francisco and picked them up and brought them up for the day. So then they got to participate a little bit and see uh, how things are here. And um, on my way down, I was caught in some traffic on 101. You know, it's the day before my birthday, and I was like a little bit cranky about having to drive all the way down there to pick them up and all the way back here. And, you know, so I was noticing the arising of the aversive mind around this. Right? So this is from a sort of set idea now, like, oh, here's me. I'm busy in teaching the retreat, and there's the people I have to pick up. You know? And then I reflected on, like, what does that mean, actually, birthday? You know? So that is the day that my mother actually birthed me. So... <laughs> So the day before my birthday is probably the day that my mother was in labor with me, <laughs> which is probably a lot worse than sitting in traffic on 101, right? So if I, you know, just dig down a couple layers of that, you know, I could let go of my idea, this limited idea, like, oh, here's me and here's my busy life. And, you know, it's like, oh, okay, you know, then I can be much more patient with that because that's a lot worse, right? So it's helpful to look at this, you know, look at the layers of who we think we are and see through this. Uh, or take it with a grain of salt, I guess is what I'm saying. So th- there's a Tibetan practice of actually imagining all beings as your mother. You know? So if in the endless cycle of rebirth, we all have incarnated in all different forms, you know, animals and people and different things like that, you know, if you multiply that by very, very large numbers, it's like, oh, at some time, everyone was my mother. Right? And also everyone was my brother, and everyone was my sister, and everyone was my child. So... You know, what if I actually related to people like that? What if I felt that same sense of gratitude towards those, everyone? You know, like, we don't know. We have our limited idea of who we are right now. So questioning our identity and the way that we see it in this limited way. So one way that we identify a lot is with our bodies, so I am my body. This is my physical body. Right? But then as we pay attention, we can see that the body is actually not in our control. And this is part of the beauty of the practice, is you take on this discipline. You know, like, let me just sit here for half an hour, for 45 minutes, for an hour, and let me just be present with whatever it is that comes up. And a lot of what comes up is not something that you would have scripted, is it? So there are sensations in the body that you would not have ordered if you were actually in control of what happened in your physical experience. Right? There are things that happen in your mind that you would not have scripted, you would not have ordered if you could have done that off some menu right, for your experience during that sitting. And it can be easy to get frustrated with that and be like, oh, if only this thing wasn't happening, then my meditation would be good. Right? You know, if only this knee pain was not here if only the mind was not restless, uh, if only I could stop thinking about this thing that happened at work. Right? So actually all of this can be seen as insight that the body and the mind are not in your control. So this is anatta, this is like the arising, the endless arising uh, selflessly of these different experiences from past causes and conditions. So I'll read this little um, this thing that I like from an, an article in the New York Times about your body, and it's called "Your Body Is Younger Than You Think." Right? So we think about our body as this solid entity, but here is in fact the scientific fact about it. Although people may think of their body as a fairly permanent structure, most of it is in a state of constant flux, as old cells are discarded and new ones generated in their place. 
Every kind of tissue has its own turnover time, depending in part on the workload endured by the cells. The cells lining the stomach, as mentioned, last only five days. The red blood cells, bruised and battered after traveling nearly a thousand miles through the maze of your circulatory system, last only 120 days or so. So that's like four months, right? On average, before being dispatched to their graveyard in the spleen. The epidermis, or the surface layer of the skin, is recycled every two weeks. The reason for the quick replacement is that this is like the body's saran wrap, and it can be easily easily damaged by scratching, solvents, wear, and tear. As for the liver, the detoxifier of all the natural plant poisons and drugs that pass through our lips, its life on the chemical warfront is quite short. An adult human liver has a turnover time of 300 to 500 days, so every year or two, a new liver. Other tissues have lifetimes measured in years, not days, but still far from permanent. Even the bones endure a nonstop makeover. The entire human skeleton is thought to be replaced every 10 years or so in adults as twin construction crews of bone-dissolving and bone-rebuilding cells combine to remodel it. So what we call our body is constantly in flux. The experience of the body is constantly in flux. Cold, hot, tingling, numb, uh, vibrating, pulsing. But in fact, actually, scientifically, on a cellular level, this is also true. So when we, I have this idea that, oh, this is me, it is actually just a concept that we use. But that which we're referring to is actually more like a stream of constant activity, unstoppable activity, an organic process that is beyond our control. And this is true of everything. So there's a, a classical um, Buddhist example of this uh, in the questions of King Melinda when someone asks him, this Nagasena, asks this monk Nagasena about the, this. And the example he gives is about the chariot. Like, what is the chariot? You know, is it the axles? Is it the uh, platform? Is it the, you know, so I'll, I'll use a more modern example with this. So I have a, a car, which is a Toyota Corolla, uh, which is now 18 years old and has probably 108,000 miles on it. So not that much miles. But over the past 18 years, um, almost everything has been replaced on this. So, you know, I can call it like, yeah, my car, and it is a car. But, you know, at one point, uh, I was driving on the highway and a piece of like tire came off some of those truck retread things and like smacked the hood and cracked the glass. So I replaced the glass, replaced the hood. The fenders replaced many times. Uh, The fluids of the car, of course, constantly changing, putting gas in it, changing the oil, changing these things. All the belts have been changed. So the car, too, it seems like the most solid object, but it actually is also constantly uh, coming new, right? And where do you find the car? You know, you can't look at any of these one parts and say that's the car. You know, it's the name that we use for this thing together, but, you know, new tires, new hubcaps, new this, new that, right? So everything is constantly in flux. Even, let's say, uh, our, our dinner or our lunch, let's say. So uh, here's a list that might be familiar to you. So cauliflower, peas, onions, turmeric, salt. Right. So this is some of the ingredients that were in uh, our lunch, right? The vegetable curry at lunch. And at some time... All of the, those ingredients were grown in different places. So there's some field in which the cauliflower is growing. There's some field in which the peas were growing. There's some place the onions were growing. Then they got brought in trucks. You know, to uh, They got picked by people. That's hard work. They got brought in trucks here. 
unloaded early morning. Then the cooks help to cook them up. Uh, some of you also help to chop it. Right? Then it's put together. And then for a short time, it exists as curry, right? like vegetable curry on the table. Probably only a few hours is it in that incarnation. Then what happens? We all spoon out into bowls. We all eat it. It becomes part of our system. Right? And then where is it? It's gone. <laughs> right? So it becomes part of our body. Later on, it passes through the other side, flush, right? Going down the sewer system, right? Uh, so in the moment, yeah, it's curry. It's, this is it. But it, it's not permanent at all. It's sort of part of this whole process of these things morphing and changing and coming together. And this is actually true of everything. So this is true of the physical world. And it also is interesting and very helpful to notice this about the mind, too. Because this is where the ideas of things as permanent show up. We identify with the mind. We have these ideas that arise about who we are and who other people are, and we actually believe them. So this is why it's very helpful in the practice to start to gain some kind of awareness of thought, uh, of what's happening in the mind. Because otherwise, you know, we basically are like um, small children who pick up anything and put it in their mouth. You know? so, so babies will pick up stuff like rocks and nails and occasionally they'll pick up food by chance, right? Cheerios, right? But then uh, a snail, like they don't care. They'll they'll pick up anything and put it in their mouth. So you need to watch them very carefully or they're going to kill themselves, right? Like human babies, you really need to watch them, right? Uh, And then you need to like pull it out of their mouth and make them spit it out or, you know. But pay attention to your mind. Like you think every thought that that comes up in your mind is true and you believe it and basically consume that and go on that, that trip. Right? So part of the practice is actually noticing this, like, well, what thoughts are edible, so to speak? You know, edible meaning, like, what leads me towards, what are healthy? <laughs> you know, what are nutritious thoughts? <laughs> what are ones that are aligned with actually reality right? and oriented in a way that is towards happiness, peace, harmony, truth? Right? And what are ones that are actually inedible thoughts? Like, when that first comes up, you should spit that out. Like, <laughs> you know? In fact, you would like if there was someone who would like pull it out of your mouth, right? So like jealous rage or, you know, obsession or, um, you know, high anxiety. Like don't eat those. That's not good for you, right? So we're sort of learning in this process of being aware of like what these different things are. Like, you know, what the flavors are, as Pam was saying uh, this morning. Like what is the flavor of this thing? Is it edible or not edible, right? Should I be eating this? And we just do it out of habit. You know, out of habit, we just eat everything that appears in the mind, um, so it's helpful to become aware. So we have these ideas of ourselves that arise, and then we live in them. You know, it's so interesting. Like, we just create these ideas, and then we totally believe them, and we live in these imagined worlds for really large amounts of time. <laughs> you know, like remarkably large amounts of time is spent living in our projections of ourselves and others. And then also trying to actually protect our projections that we want others to have of us, you know, like concoct some sense of self uh, that we like, and then spend a lot of energy in the press office, like making sure that everyone else thinks what we want them to think about us, right? So you might have seen this play out here on retreat. So, you know, you came together with this group of people, and here again is another um, impermanent arrangement. So retreat, and everyone came from different places, and now we're kind of you know, idling here, you know, like the vegetable curry, but in this case for 10 days. And then at the end of that, everything goes back, right? Everyone goes away. Then the next retreat comes, people from, come from all different places, you know, boom, right? 
So you show up on retreat, and then there's different people, um, you know, most of whom you don't know. But that doesn't stop the mind from having ideas about them, does it? So, you know, sometimes someone is, like, walking a little bit too slowly for you, or, um, you know, they they put their shoes in the place you like to put your shoes or something, and then they they arise as, they're, like, take birth in your mind as the enemy, right? So suddenly, like, they're there to thwart you, and, you know, you see them, and you're, like, protected, and, you know, this whole drama is playing out, and you're making it all up, you know? (laughs) Then the other side is the famous phenomenon of the Vipassana romance, of course. So this is where you actually like the way someone walks, or maybe you like their socks, or uh, you know, something about the way that they serve their food very mindfully. And so then you know, you at the corner of your eye, you watch them eat, oh, so mindful how they take their soup, right? Uh, so then you start to imagine, like you'll talk to them and after the retreat, and you'll have so much in common, and then... Um, you'll have a mindful courtship and then you'll move in together and you'll have like a nice altar in your apartment and you know so you play this all out and you're making it all up you know we're really making it all up but then we inhabit this world of drama then you get nervous if they sit near you and they may or may not know you exist right it's just like it's all in your mind you know pay attention to this with, with a sense of humor too it's like crazy but see how the mind creates these worlds and then we inhabit them and they're not always good worlds, too. Still, nonetheless, we inhabit them. Right? So I, um, I had this experience uh, a couple years ago where I acted in a short film. And um, I don't actually have any experience in acting, so I just did it as a sort of lark experience, see what it's like. And in this film, uh, it was an amateur film, there was, there's one part where one person is filmed separately, one part where the other person's filmed separately, and then one part where we were filmed together. So um, I'd seen a picture of the other actress in this thing, but I didn't know her. And so they filmed my part, and then um, we're supposed to film the part together um, in this restaurant. And because it's an amateur film, like, you know, the director had, like, kind of scrambled to get this restaurant for, like, an hour and a half before it opened. And basically, we're supposed to be in love, and we're having dinner in this restaurant, right? So I showed up the appointed time, and then the other actress is like not showing up, not showing up, not showing up. So she shows up like 45 minutes late, um, and then she comes in and, and makes this big giant scene, you know. Um, and uh, to me, I perceive this as like she's just this like narcissistic diva, you know. And I was like, oh, and I'm supposed to be in love with this person, right? You know, in the in this film. So like, how am I going to do this, right? So then I was like, all right, like, apply my meditative techniques to this. And uh, even though I don't know how to act, so you know, I try to look at her good qualities and you know, physical qualities, mental qualities, anything, grasping, grasping. So finally I get into some state where I can believe that like, I'm going to be in love with her. So then, um, so we start filming this thing, and she actually had much more acting experience than me. Um, so once she settled down from her fit, she was fine. And then um, you know, we did the scene... And then there was this really interesting moment where the director said, cut. And so we were like holding hands or something in this restaurant. And she took her hand away. And I noticed in my mind, um, like, confusion arising and then hurt. And then you sort of like, was it something I did, you know? And uh, it was so funny to see that because then I was like, oh, that's right. I don't know you, right? <laughs> we're not in love. In fact, I thought you were annoying a second ago, you know? Uh, but it was totally like I had created this in my mind and then believed that, you know, and then lived in that world. And it's so funny to see that. I mean, it actually made me sympathetic to all these actresses and actors who, like, 
fall in love and on the set or something because it's like yeah it's hard to see that line now my, my the person I played opposite she seemed quite fine with it she was obviously a better and more experienced actress than me because when they yelled cut she was just like do 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 and sort of backed her <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> but it was very funny to see this um, this going on and my favorite story about this you know is this um, this Zen story about someone who goes into a cave and they paint a picture of a tiger and then they look at it and they go oh no a tiger and they run out of the cave screaming right <laughs> And like, where was the tiger? Like, they painted it themselves, right? So watch this in your mind. You know, see how we're constantly painting these pictures. And would that it were just one picture. They're actually like labyrinths of nested delusion, you know, <laughs> that we're like inhabiting, you know, spending so much time inhabiting. It's, uh, it's really quite uh, crazy. So be humbled by this power of delusion, you know, be humbled by this. So a lot of people reported that, you know, they're starting to see things, and it's stuff that they don't want to really see, you know. It's like ways in which the mind is acting that um, is really unsettling. Like, why is it doing this? What's going on, you know? Uh, like, why am I still worried about that? Or Like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to be still, like, obsessing about that person or something. So just see that. Like, observe the mind in action. You know, get interested in it like this. See also that when there is suffering usually there is some arising of self in that. There's some idea of myself that has arisen. And sometimes there's this arising of this craving for this sense of self. Like, I want to become this person. You know, there's this, this urge for becoming something or other. Um, that too can be a lot of suffering. Now, metta is something that really helps us to be connected and to break down these barriers that we have in these ideas that we have about the separate sense of self. You know, there's a lot going on now with studies of um, mindfulness or meditation and neuroscience. And um, I mostly haven't been that interested in that stuff, honestly, because I felt like I know that it works. You know, I don't need a scientific study to show that it works. And I know that it works through my own experience, but also through your experience. Because as I've been teaching, I can see how this transforms people's heart and minds. But it also is kind of interesting. So I went to a lecture recently um, at Stanford by Richie Davidson, who is someone who sometimes comes and um, does some scientist retreats here. And one of the most interesting studies that I I heard about there was one in which they did... uh, They taught an eight-week curriculum on compassion and kindness to four-year-olds, so to preschoolers. And they did like a little pretest before, and then they did a test after. So the pretest involved using um, what the currency for preschoolers is, which is stickers. Uh, and so they gave these kids like a bunch of stickers, and then they had four envelopes. And they had asked the kids beforehand, like, who's your favorite friend in class, and who's your least favorite person in class, right? So then they put a picture of each of these kids on an envelope. Then they picked like a kid who they didn't know and put a picture. And then they put a picture of um, a kid who seemed sick. Right, so they had four envelopes. So then they told the kids, like, okay, you can give out the stickers however you like to these kids. Right? So, of course, in the beginning, they pretty much all give them to their like, bestest friend and like, none to the enemy and whatever to the other people. Right? And then they run them through this eight-week course on um, kindness, compassion. Right? Uh, and then at the end, they do this exercise again, and then by and large, they actually distribute the stickers evenly. So it's, it's really interesting to see that. And this is actually what we're doing in the metta practice, is seeing through these divisions that we create you know, between self and other. You know? Like, 
where does, where's my person? Where's the outskirts of my solar system? Who's in and who's out, right? And connect with this sense of caring, just of basic kindness and respect uh, for each other and for all beings. So sometimes, in fact, if there's someone in retreat who annoys you, uh, I think like it's helpful to imagine them actually as a four-year-old, you know, uh, because you know we all look like grown-ups here, but people are in all different places and you know dealing with all different things. So you could imagine like you know the person sitting on the chair, their legs are dangling, they can't reach the ground, and you know, so if they're kind of fidgety or you know uh, blowing their nose a lot or you know don't come at the right time, it's like okay, well if they were a preschooler, you'd be like I can't believe they're on a ten-day retreat, that's something, right? <laughs> but, you know. Like, of course, they're not showing up on time sometimes, but you know. So you have much more kindness towards them because of this, right? So sometimes it can help to like, reflect on that. You know. The other thing that is a helpful reflection, I think, in these cases is um, uh, an example from uh, also the Zen tradition from Chuang Tzu, which is this teaching about the empty boat. And I use this in some of my groups. So, you know, we have this idea that um, here's me and here's another person separate self. And then when someone does something to me, it's like personal. And so I hate them. Right? So the empty boat example is that like, if you're rowing a boat on a pond, and there's a boat that comes towards you and bumps into your boat, then you know like, oh, it came there because of the conditions of the water and of the wind and like, what kind of wood it was made of and where it was tied. And so you can just push that boat away and keep rowing. So you can do what you need to do and keep going. But you don't actually usually need to yell at the boat. Right? <laughs> But if someone else is in that boat, then when someone bumps into you, you might be like, watch where you're going. Why can't you row straight? What's wrong with you? Right? So you get mad at them. Right? So this is how we are when we attribute agency, when we don't understand that basically everyone is playing out their patterns of delusion. Until we are awakened, a whole lot of the time, what people are doing is playing out their conditioned, habitual patterns of delusion. And this includes you. <laughs> as you can see when you sit there and actually pay attention to what's going on in your heart and mind. So sometimes that reflection can kind of help to cut through some of the judgment. It's like, oh yeah, different causes and conditions. This is what's going on now. This is what it is. I don't need to actually be that uh, worked up about it in that way. So reflecting on the way that we create ourselves, we create the other, and then that causes friction, that causes suffering. You know, this is not in alignment with the truth of the way things are. It is out of alignment with the truth. And thus we suffer. So the truth is actually that we all exist in this web of interconnection. We all exist through each other. We live because of each other. None of us are separate. None of us have done things alone. So there was this line that, that I saw um, you know, brought up a lot in the, um, the news about, you know, we built this, right? This is a Republican National Convention, one day it was this. And then, um, then the other side says something else. And so I was like, what is this about? So I kind of looked this up. And apparently this is from a speech that Obama had given. And I actually really liked the speech because he was, he was talking about actually interconnection. So he said, uh, you know, if you were successful, somebody along the line gave you some help. There was a great teacher somewhere in your life. Somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we have that allowed you all to thrive. Someone invested in roads and bridges. If you've got a business, you didn't build all those things. Someone else made that happen, including basically saying the government. You know, like we're, we live as part of this collective whole. Right? 
And this is true, and it takes actually humility to recognize that. So as opposed to arrogance, like, oh, I did it myself. It's just me. You, know, you all should look up to me because it's just me. You know? Like we are all part of a web, even sitting here in retreat. You know, we all rely on each other to be here. Like it would be very hard to continue to sit and walk without the other 80 people being part of that, isn't it? Otherwise, you could have just done this retreat in your garage alone, right? <laughs> so here's another example. Um, so I'm going I'm to talk a little bit about baseball. And I'll, I'll give the caveat that um, I do have a critique of professional sports. So I feel like um, it is a little bit like, um, you know, there are a bunch of people who are overpaid and, you know, particularly when I see the difference between what, like, the best female athletes are paid versus male athletes, it's ridiculous. You know, the best women's soccer player in the world gets, like, $60,000 a year, whereas, you know, the lowest-paid baseball player makes millions, right? Um, The idea of a baseball team, it's interesting, is another example, actually, of anatta, of this selflessness. So there's this concept, like San Francisco Giants, right? But what does that actually mean? So, you know, San Francisco Giants is this team but it no longer, I don't know if it ever was, that those people actually were from San Francisco, right? Like, it's not like they were born here, went to school here. You know, it's all this business thing where people are traded, and then they're on this team, and then they go to this team, right? So it's, it's purely this, like, it's even more than the Toyota Corolla. It's like this pure concept, right, to see. As well as that, you know, there's some aspect of, like, oh, everyone pays so much, so much attention to these things. And um, meanwhile, you know, there are incredible, terrible things happening in um, systems of oppression and war and so on, and we're watching someone hit a ball, right? So (laughs) that being said, as my colleagues know, I am susceptible to this too uh, and have gotten interested in this, um, uh, particularly in the the sort of postseason. So the San Francisco Giants um, are doing quite well, um, but they haven't really always been. So they actually were in their division playoff series and they were down uh, zero games to two. So they're on the brink of elimination against the Cincinnati Reds. And uh, apparently there's this sort of turnaround moment that happened um, from a speech from this guy on the team. So there's a guy named Hunter Pence. And he was actually more recently brought to the team. So he joined in the end of July or something. Right? And of that team, you know, the, the, they won the World Series in 2010. I think there's only two field players who are the same on the team now as it was before. So it really is sort of like this changing, you know, vegetable soup of people. Right? So apparently this guy, Hunter Pence, this, the new kid on the team, uh, came to them and gave them a little bit of a talk. And he said, um, look into each other's eyes. I want one more day with you. This is the most fun. It's the best team I've ever been on. And no matter what happens, we shouldn't give in. We owe it to each other. Play for each other. Play for each other, not for yourself. Win each moment. Win each inning. It's all we have left. But apparently he delivered this in this more intense way than I just did. You know? And it actually, uh, you know, and from reading the accounts of the other players, at first they were like, what is this guy doing? But then they actually felt the passion of this guy. And um, uh, some people who were there said, you know, uh, tonight I was proud to be together as a team. You know, he, this guy was encouraging us to play for the name on the front, basically the team, and not for the name on the back. You know, and these guys do become these big diva superstars. But he's like, we're playing together. We're playing for each other. And this is actually very motivating. And then I haven't heard this before. He said, you know, honor the game and the game honors you. I don't know where and when it ends, but tonight I was proud to be part of this team. So they actually went, went on to win that division. So they won three games in a row away. And then they had the same situation happening in the next 
level of the playoffs. Also were down and uh, came back, had to play uh, four games under bad conditions and won that too. And now they're in the World Series. Uh, the, <laughs> the World Series will still be going on once you get out of here, don't worry, for those of you who are baseball. <laughs> but it's, it's really interesting to see like this sense of connection. You know, uh, The unusual and beautiful thing about rallying people from a positive sense of connection. You know, like play for each other. Do this for each other, not for yourself. So I remember when I um, started sitting on retreats and uh, I did a 10-day retreat and then I went on to this, do a three-month retreat. And uh, it was actually very difficult. You know, I was quite young. I was like 21 and I, hadn't, I didn't know anyone on the retreat. And I did come to that point, like some of you may have on this retreat too, where I was like, what am I doing here? You know, why am I doing this? Right. And I remember they kept saying these phrases that were like, for the purification of mind and the liberation of all beings. Right. And I was like, what on earth are they talking about? You know? <laughs> because after a while, it just feels like sitting here alone, breathing and walking back and forth. And like, how is this connected to helping being all beings and, you know, all this stuff, you know. But it actually really is true, I think. You know, it's, it's really true, and I gained perspective on that as my practice has unfolded. So there's one, uh, some uh, sort of studies of philosophy and history that say, you know, this time in which the Buddha was teaching was this really interesting time in human history. So at that time, there were all these kind of simultaneous developments happening in India and Persia and China. It was like, Buddha, Lao Tzu, Socrates, you know, all this kind of foment happening. And it's called like the axial age. You know, there was this changing, uh, this changing period of history in which humans were starting to learn to relate to each other differently. And from all of these different religions, there actually came up some version of uh, paying attention with compassion to each other. So here's a, a quote from uh, a book from Grace Lee Boggs. And she's this uh, really amazing activist from Detroit, who's now 97, uh, who's written a book called The Next American Revolution. So she talks about you know, this, this new awakening to the divinity or sacredness within each human being uh, as this event that was happening at that time in the planet. And that now we're actually in a similar time of change. So due to globalization, you know, due to technology, there are all these changes happening, and it actually is calling on us to relate to each other in this different way. It's calling on us to relate to the planet in a different way. So with more awareness of interconnection, you know, with awareness of like what happens when I flush, you know, with awareness of what our consumption does on the planet. So she talks about, uh, you know, in, in today's society, we need to see ourselves as new people who recognize the sacredness in ourselves and in others, who can view love and compassion, in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., not as some sentimental and weak response, but instead as the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. So love and compassion, not as some sentimental and weak response, but the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. So making a leap to recognizing the sacredness of ourselves and others in every moment, And when you're able to do that, you know, when we're actually able to pay attention in this way, so much new is possible. 
So when we're able to step out of our ideas of who we are, step out of our ideas of who we project other people to be, so much more is possible. So much more than our ideas that we have in the moment. Creativity, beauty, service. And it's not necessarily easy. But it really is something that you're doing here, both for yourself, but also really for everyone who you will encounter in the future. So you know, people have a tendency to judge at different points, like, oh, that meditation was good, that one was bad, my practice is going well, it's not going well, it was a waste of time, I'm good at this, I'm bad at this, right? So see all those as just temporary arisings in your mind. You have faith that what you're doing here is actually very important, not just for transforming your own consciousness, you know, for aligning yourself more and more with the truth of the way things are, which will help you in your life to live more in harmony and peace, for you to understand what's really the causes of happiness and peace and what are kind of false leads. But also whatever transformation that happens for you, whatever understanding that you gain, will actually affect every single person that you encounter for the rest of your life. Not just those closest to you, not just the person you marry or your children or your coworkers, but actually every time that you're able to meet someone with this loving awareness. You know, every time you walk into a store and are able to be present with someone in a different way, you, know, you are part of this change. You know, you're part of this arising, of this new way of being. We're all part of this movement in this way. So you do this work not just for yourself, but actually in this way for all of us, and supported by all of us too. So Grace Lee Boggs says, linking love and revolution is an idea whose time has come. We urgently need to bring to our communities the limitless capacity to love, to serve, and to create for and with each other. So this is what we're doing here. You know, practicing recognizing the sacredness of your own life and the sacredness of others' lives. Developing that capacity to be present in this way and seeing all the things that block it. You know, hopefully seeing them with as much kindness as we can, with as much humility as we can, you know, with a sense of humor even about the crazy antics of the mind. But it really is all worth it. You know, this is a very noble thing that you're doing with your time here this week. So I thank all of you for your practice, and thank you for your attention this evening. So let's just sit together for a few moments. Recognizing the sacredness in ourselves and other, we can see love as compassion as the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. May our practice be for our own benefit and the benefit of all beings everywhere.
So a time to practice some sacred walking. Thank you. <laughs>